All right, well, let's turn to Psalm 110 together this morning. This will be our Psalm of the Month for February. And if you want to read ahead, we'll be back in Acts, Acts 6, the first seven verses there next week. All right, Acts, or sorry, Psalm 110. We'll read the, uh, the seven verses here. So hear God's word this morning. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will stretch forth your strong scepter from Zion, saying, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will volunteer freely in the day of your power. In holy array from the womb of the dawn, your youth are to you as the dew. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings in the day of his wrath. He will judge among the nations. He will fill them with corpses. He will shatter the chief men over a broad country. He will drink from the brook by the wayside. Therefore, he will lift up his head. And our reading there. Fight and you may die. Run and you'll live at least a while. And dying in your beds many years from now, would you be willing to trade all the days from this day to that for one chance, just one chance, to come back here and tell our enemies that they may take our lives, but they may never take our freedom? Uh, maybe, you, yeah, somebody said Braveheart. <laughs> Amy got it. <laughs> Maybe you recognize the words of Mel Gibson, uh, William Wallace, there from the movie Braveheart. Uh, movies about war often include a battle scene near the end where a leader makes a, a passionate speech to rally tired and beaten and discouraged troops. And it's, a, it's inspirational and invigorating that the troops need to see the strength and resolve of their leader uh, to be encouraged and refreshed to, to follow and to press on. Well, I want to suggest this morning that Psalm 110 ought to function uh, in some ways uh, in the same way for us. It tells about our king, King Jesus, pictures him leading his troops to victory. Uh, and the troops are, are blessed of God, they're refreshed, victory is certain. Um, Psalm 110 addresses the battle of history. Uh, the battle between the kingdom of Christ and the kingdom of this world, the kingdom of Satan, we might even say. Um, and it's a warning to those who are not on the side of King Jesus. Uh, but the message this morning uh, to those with this king is to be encouraged, be refreshed. Uh, your king fought through this hard life on earth, even through death. He now reigns in heaven with all power, uh, the power of Almighty God to, to care for his people. Uh, and to bring you to full and final salvation. So be encouraged, be refreshed in him, in your king. I want to begin, as you see on your outline there, by just looking, considering the significance of Psalm 110 in the scriptures, in the whole of the scriptures, and in, in theology, and in our understanding of the scriptures. Maybe you know someone who likes to tell a particular story, or a couple of stories over and over again. You know, you've heard the same story 20 times from them probably reflects something of the importance and the significance of that story to them. 
Well, partly the, the significance of Psalm 110 can be seen in how many times it comes up in the Bible over and over again. Uh, Psalm 110 is quoted in Matthew 22, in Mark 12, in Luke 20, uh, in Acts chapter 2. It's quoted in Hebrews 1, Hebrews 5, Hebrews 7, Hebrews 10. Uh, it's the most quoted psalm in the New Testament, uh, easily. Uh, verse 1 of Psalm 110 is quoted six times in the New Testament. Uh, so it would seem to be a psalm uh, that we should know and understand very well. Right? It's, the, it's the one the New Testament turns to over and over and over again to tell us who Jesus is. Uh, so what is the significance of Psalm 110? What, what is it about? I want to look at three aspects of its significance, three uh, connections, themes uh, in, in theology as well. So first, letter A, you see on your outline, uh, Old Testament kings uh, at some point, and this was common in, in the ancient world, had a, a, a pronouncement of their kingship. We might call it an oracle of enthronement. Um, an official pronouncement for the Old Testament kings of God's anointing them as king. So uh, 1 Samuel 10, for example, Samuel anoints Saul and he announces, Has not the Lord anointed you a ruler over his inheritance? It's a, a proclamation that God has made him king. Uh, 1 Samuel 16 functions this way for David. There's a proclamation that David has been anointed king. Uh, 2 Kings 11 for Joash and, and so on. So Psalm 110 is an oracle of enthronement of the Messiah, of, of the great king who was to come, the king, and it acts out this anointing from God, his commissioning from God to reign. And, and so we'll see, uh, in, in, beginning in verse 1 uh, through verse 3, there's this statement to the Messiah, to the king, and then again in verse 4, we, we begin with another long statement to and about this king. But verse 1 is really key uh, to seeing this, to understanding how this is announcement of the Messiah King. Verse 1 says, The Lord says to my Lord. Or the Lord said to my Lord. Um, what's going on in that, that statement? You'll see the first Lord there is in all capital letters, almost certainly in your English Bible. And that reflects that this, this is the covenant name of God. Yahweh, as, as we, it's often said or pronounced. This is the name of God. Uh, Yahweh says... Uh, to my Lord, that's the Hebrew word Adonai. Um, it mean, can mean master or Lord, or it, and it's, it's very frequently refers to God in the Old Testament. Uh, but who is this? Who is the Lord, Yahweh, speaking to? The Lord says to my Lord. Well, it pictures uh, God the Father speaking to the Son, uh, speaking to the Messiah, uh, his Son, to come. And that's not just a, a guess based on one, Psalm 110 here. That's what the New Testament tells us over and over again. For example, in Matthew 22, uh, Jesus is challenging the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and he asks them, he, he challenges them with a question, whose son is the Christ? Remember that scene? Um, who, who am I really claiming to be if, if I am the Messiah? Uh, and they, they answer the son of David, and this is correct as far as it goes, that it says at least the Messiah is to be a man, a, a descendant of David. But Jesus pushes them further then in Matthew 22. He says, how then does David call him, the Messiah, Lord? And he's referring there to Psalm 110, verse 1. Why does David write Psalm 110 and speak of the Messiah to come as Lord? Um, master, Adonai. There's no one above David in Israel's history. He, he's, he's the great king, and yet 
David is using this title often used for God for this king to come. It's the father speaking to the son, who's master even of David. Um, and, and Jesus is in part pointing to his divinity here. He's telling the Pharisees and the Sadducees, I'm not just a man claiming a title. Uh, I'm the son of God appointed to this task by God uh, himself. Um, Peter in Acts chapter 2 may, um, makes this point for us as well. So in his famous speech at Pentecost, uh, Peter ends his speech at Pentecost with Psalm 110. He, he, clinches, he sort of clinches his whole argument with Psalm 110, verse 1. Um, the Lord said to my Lord, sit here at my right hand. And, and Peter then concludes the very last sentence after that in his sermon is, therefore let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him, Jesus, both Lord and Christ. So Peter sees Psalm 110 as a, a pronouncement of Jesus' kingship, an oracle of enthronement of the Messiah, um, his commissioning by God himself. And there are other passages also that prove this is a, a direct prophecy of the Messiah, uh, crowned king. Well, the significance of this psalm can also be seen in it, that it describes in part, uh, letter B on your outline, what, what theologians call the covenant of redemption. The covenant of redemption. It's a bit of a technical term in theology, but it's, it's an, a, an important thing to see. Um, we understand the, the one covenant, generally the one covenant or promise that runs through the whole Bible, that there really is the, the thread of the narrative, the story of the, of the whole Bible, uh, is what we call the covenant of grace, God's promise of grace. It's, it's God's promise to save sinners uh, through a Savior, ultimately Jesus, of course. And those who had put their faith in him would be forgiven uh, of their sins ever since the fall in, in, in Genesis 3. Uh, that's that's the, the covenant that runs through the whole Bible. But the covenant of redemption stands behind that. Um, it's, it's an agreement, a covenant between the members of the Trinity, especially the Father and the Son. Uh, they promise covenant in eternity past to save those the Father loves. The Father, loving his people, sends the Son to die and to rise again to save. The Son agrees to, to go and become a man, take on humanity, and, and to die for sins, and then to be given a kingdom uh, as, as the God-man because of his obedience. There are various evidences of this covenant, this agreement between the Father and the Son. Uh, in the Bible, John 17, Jesus is, is praying there to the Father, and he speaks to the Father of those that you gave me. Uh, it, it, it gives some evidence of this agreement between the Father and the Son. The Father has given his people to the Son to save, uh, to die for them. Matthew 28, after the resurrection, after Jesus has accomplished salvation, he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has now been given to me. Uh, evidence is the, the gift of the Father for his obedience. Um, Jesus had all authority in one sense as God before, right? But as, as God-man, as the son of David, he's now given, given this kingship and this authority. Psalm 2, uh, again, pictures the Father and the, the Son, the Messiah interacting, the nations given as an inheritance uh, and then Psalm 110, our psalm here, God says, sit at my right hand. Take, take this place of honor and authority um, in heaven. And, it, and it's anticipating what would happen in the future, right, after Jesus' faithfulness on the cross. Um, psalm, or verse 4 here in Psalm 110, the Lord has sworn 
and will not change his mind. That's covenant language. God has, has promised. He's sworn. Uh, and it, 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 the certainty of God's promise is here. He will not change. Uh, Hebrews 5 quotes Psalm 110 explaining this. says, So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, God the Father, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. There's that promise uh, to, to Jesus, to the Son. Well, looking at, at letter C then, a further way to see the theological significance of this psalm uh, is through what we call Christ's offices. Christ's offices. Maybe that is or isn't a, a concept you're familiar with, um, but there are three functions or three offices that Jesus holds that he was appointed to by the Father. And, and in those, Jesus serves as a fulfillment of the three main uh, offices, roles, that God, uh, institutions that God created in the Old Testament. Uh, what were those? What, what were the three offices God gave to the Israelites? They were prophets and priests and kings, right? And so, as the Westminster Shorter Catechism summarizes, that's a, a helpful way for us to understand Jesus' role, who he is, what, what his person is, that he's a prophet, he's our prophet, he's our priest, and he's our king. Um, Two of those figure prominently in Psalm 110. So I'm going to look at those uh, each briefly. So Christ as king here in Psalm 110. Uh, just real quick, the shorter catechism um, in helping us see this, this helpful way to understand who Jesus is asks, how does Christ execute the office of a king? And the answer is Christ executes the office of a king in subduing us to himself, in ruling and defending us, and in restraining and conquering all his and our enemies. And that's really what's pictured in Psalm 110 in some ways. The, the Messiah is pictured ruling with God uh, here. At his right hand, verse 1 and verse 5, this, this place of honor and power. Uh, it's a far-reaching rule, an ultimate rule. Verse 2, um, God says to the Messiah, uh, Stretch forth your strong scepter. He will have a strong scepter, a, a, a powerful rule is essentially what that means. And it, and it goes beyond Zion, beyond Jerusalem, beyond Israel. Um, he rules, it says, in the midst of his enemies. That's a contrast to all of Israel's other kings, right, who had uh, plenty of trouble just holding on to this one little strip of desert that we call Israel in the Middle East. This king to come would rule the world in the midst of all of his enemies, right, uh, with a strong scepter. And in fact, even crushes those kingdoms, verses 5 and 6. We'll come back to that. But Christ is God's true and ultimate king. That's what's pictured here and in other psalms as well. He fulfills where other kings failed. Um, he successfully defends God's people. He judges perfectly, verse 6. He rules forever, verse 4. And I want to just pause here and encourage you, again, to take comfort in the king of Psalm 110, in your king. Uh, today, many leaders fail us, right? They fail God's standards. They have us worried about the world. They have us worried about our country, what it will be for our kids, or even just for the next year or the next month. Um, we're in a, a national election year and, and have plenty to worry about various outcomes, right? The message of the Bible in Psalm 110 is, well, it's, it's not very much like William Wallace's speech that I began with even. The, the basic 
speech that William Wallace made in that movie there is, is well, we don't really know how this is going to go, but fight hard, you know, and even if you die, well, at least they didn't, you know, take our freedom, will, you know, from us willingly, right? That is not the message of Psalm 110. The confidence of Psalm 110 is where our leaders fail us, even if it's to the point of the, the collapse of the United States, Jesus reigns. It changes nothing. Uh, he will not fail. He rules with the scepter of Almighty God uh, as our, our, our mediator king. And so you can trust him. Secondly, we see Christ as priest in this psalm. Uh, again, I'll just share briefly the, the Shorter Catechism summary, question 25. How does Christ execute the office of a priest? Christ executes the office of a priest in his once offering up of himself a sacrifice to satisfy divine justice and reconcile us to God and in making continual intercession for us. Um, so this king of Psalm 110 is also somewhat strangely a priest. The, the kings and the priests were distinct in the Old Testament. Kings weren't priests and, and vice versa. Um, verse 4, looking at verse 4, uh, is where it says the Lord has sworn and then begins another quote of God speaking about this king. He says, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Uh, and there, in fact, are other places in the Bible where these two offices are, are kind of mixed. They're joined together, kings and priests. Um, the Old Testament looked forward to this sort of king that would come who would also be a priest. So David is an example of that. Uh, David very obviously was king, but we find David sometimes offering sacrifices, the temple, acting like a priest. Um, Zechariah chapter 6, for example, speaks of a priest sitting on his throne, a priest who is also a king. And Hebrews chapter 1, at the very beginning of Hebrews, brings this together in Jesus. It says, when he had made purification of sins, that's what a priest does, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. He sat on his throne. So a priest sitting on a throne. And, and here in Psalm 110, we have a king who's a priest. But not just any priest. The, the psalm says he's like Melchizedek. So who is Melchizedek? Uh, Melchizedek is uh, a character that comes up only three places in the Bible. So only one time in the story of the Bible, that's Genesis 14, and then he comes up in Psalm 110, uh, and then again in Hebrews uh, a few times in chapters 5 to 7. Uh, and Melchizedek is clearly a, a type of Jesus, as we say in, 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 in theology. He's a, a symbol. He's a character that, that holds a role that's symbolic, that teaches us about who Jesus would be and what, what he would do. Uh, so in Genesis 14, the story of Abraham, Abraham, this is where he meets Melchizedek. And he's called the king of Salem and a priest of God Most High. A king and a priest. And he comes and he blesses Abraham. And then Abraham pays him a tithe. Um, and so there's some reasons already there for saying the Messiah is like Melchizedek in some ways. He's a king and a priest, which is a bit strange, but points ahead to the Messiah. Uh, he's powerful enough to, to bless. He's great enough to bless Abraham. I think it's reasonable to suppose perhaps, you know, reading the account in Genesis that Abraham was the wealthiest, most powerful man on earth. You know, picture the scene where um, Abraham wants to chase down five kings and their armies. And he does, and he beats them up. 
you know, and it's not that big a deal. Um, he blesses Abraham, and then Abraham pays a tithe. Only God receives a tithe. And yet Abraham pays a tithe to Melchizedek. Hebrews 6 and 7 gives a lot of space to comparing Melchizedek and Jesus. Um, it says his, his name means the king of righteousness, uh, that Melchizedek was without parents, uh, resembling the Son of God, a priest forever. Uh, Melchizedek was not a priest because he was a Levite. Uh, the Levites came much later. Levi wasn't born yet. Uh, Jesus, too, was of a different tribe. He wasn't a priest because he was simply another Levite. Um, uh, perhaps some have suggested Melchizedek was an appearance uh, of the Son of God in the Old Testament, uh, something like the, the angel of the Lord. Um, either way, he's a priest that's unique. He's a priest that's superior to all others. Um, you know, all, what was wrong with all the other priests? Why, they, why were they inferior? Why does this matter? Well, the Levites, there were, there were many, many of them, thousands of them, generations. They all died, and they all had to keep offering the same uh, service, the same rituals over and over and over again uh, to picture God's work of salvation. The people depended on them, those sacrifices, day after day. But a priest like Melchizedek, Jesus, uh, is by himself. He's, he's one priest forever, one sacrifice forever. And so people can trust in this priest, ultimately, who's ultimately God himself and gives full and final peace with God, access to God by, by his own death, the sacrifice of himself. And this is very important for you to understand that you're, you're united to this priest king, Jesus. Uh, not only do you have his rule and his power and his protection as king, but you have his sacrifice, his righteousness that's given to you. Unlike the Old Testament believers who never, never knew that full sacrifice uh, in full, they always had to perform ritual after ritual and, and, and looking forward to it and knowing it in shadows. You have to do nothing. You can do nothing uh, to know and receive the salvation of this gracious king. He draws you to himself by his love and his grace. You can do nothing to earn access to him and the Father through him. And the whole Old Testament, the priests, the sacrificial system, uh, anticipate this, this final divine priest king that Jesus is. And I encourage you, as, as you read your Old Testament, um, You'll learn and understand your salvation better. You understand Christ's priesthood, what it means that he's your priest, your sacrifice, uh, your priesthood in him uh, better and better. Well, we continue to consider the, the significance of Psalm 110. Um, secondly, on your outline, looking at, at two relationships to this king. The psalm describes two different people in relation to the Messiah, to Jesus. First, his enemies. Uh, his enemies have no hope. They have no part in the king's blessing. And verse 1 begins again, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. So this king is going to reign until. There, there's this inevitable end where, where there will be ultimate victory. And anyone who's opposed to him gets footstooled. Right, this is a, this is a, a Hebrew idiom. Speaking of someone who's underneath, who's, who's forcibly ruled, um, enemies face that certainty, the enemies of Christ, the, the power of the covenant of redemption, this promise between the Father and the Son. 
um, as sure as his salvation for his people is, is the defeat, the footstooling of his enemies, ultimately. There will be none left one day. Um, they're, they're described, they, they'll be judged. Verse 6, he will judge among the nations. That, that very phrase, he will judge among the nations, is applied to God, to Yahweh, uh, other places in the prophets. Uh, and, and the Messiah is said to be the one who's given this judgment. This king is the one who's going to do that judging. And the New Testament confirms that over and over again. Matthew 3 pictures the Messiah, Jesus, having a winnowing fork in his hand. Matthew 25, the separation of the sheep and goats. Acts 10 and 17 says Jesus is the one appointed to judge the world. Uh, 2 Timothy 4, he's the judge of the living and the dead and so on. And the language of this psalm, as it goes on to speak of his relation to his enemies, it's not gentle, it's not tame, uh, it's not seeker-sensitive, we might say. Uh, Jesus' enemies uh, are crushed in their rebellion, uh, as it says. Uh, verse 5, again, he, he takes this place of honor and power with God. And then it says, he will shatter kings in the day of his wrath. He will judge among the nations, he will fill them with corpses. He will shatter the chief men over a broad country. Um, it's violent language, shattering. Um, and, it, and it focuses on kings, chief men, uh, presidents, Supreme Court justices, dictators. The leaders of the world are singled out. Even the most powerful in the world are no match for this king when final judgment comes one day. And that's, that should be a great encouragement to us. We also want you to recognize it's the message as we're going through the book of Acts that, that's carried out, that's proclaimed in the book of Acts. What, what is the political message that's implied over and over again by the apostles preaching in Acts? It's that uh, Jesus, not Caesar, reigns. Right? Jesus is Lord, uh, not Caesar. Ultimately, this is what gets the apostles in, in trouble in part over and over again. It's a message we ought to testify to. If nothing else, we ought to be motivated by the fate of those who haven't accepted Jesus, who don't know their need of forgiveness through him, who, who don't yet know they don't have a future if, if they don't confess and submit to the gracious king, Jesus. We ought to tell people about Jesus, tell them about his love and his grace and his, his forgiveness, and yet the Bible is also full of warnings as here about the sin and the power and the judgment of Jesus as, as an inducement to Come to his grace and his love. Uh, who in your life needs to hear about King Jesus? Uh, the New Testament makes it clear, in part, our mission is to testify to him as king. Well, the other group of people relative to this king, then, is his people. Uh, letter B on your outline, his people. And verse 3 particularly speaks of them. Verse 3 says, your people will volunteer freely in the day of your power. In holy array from the womb of the dawn, your youth are to you as the dew. Now that poetry, at least in English, is not all totally clear in exactly what it's saying there. But let's think about this for a minute. What, what does this say about the people who do serve the king? Well, they, they belong to the king. They're described as your people, the Messiah's people. He identifies with them by implication. He, he cares for them. He protects them. Um, they're your people. They, they share with him in all of his blessings and victory and so on. It says they volunteer freely for him. That, that's a contrast to the, 
the forced submission of his enemies. They willingly and gladly join this king. Uh, think of the uh, Psalm 45, another psalm that clearly speaks of the Messiah, of Jesus. I pictured there as a bride eagerly and joyfully joining the king, uh, her groom. Um, they don't receive the judgment and wrath of this psalm, but, but blessing and victory. They're pictured as appearing in holy array. The, the people of God, they, they share his glory and his holiness in some way. And again, that's because the king is all, also a priest, right? Priests exist for the sake of sinners. Those who repent of their sins and, and want to be restored in their relationship to God. The king's people have this in him. They have a perfect, once for all, uh, eternal sacrifice and priest who gives them sure and lasting peace with God. Well, as we continue to think about the people who belong to this king, we, we uh, turn to our, the final point there in your outline and some implications of all of this. And the, the basic point of encouragement I want to give you and leave you with this morning is to be encouraged, be refreshed in your king. Uh, look at verse 3 again, um, the, the part that maybe isn't quite as clear. In holy array from the womb of the dawn, your youth are to you as the dew. Uh, God's people are there. They're described with metaphors of dew and youth. Uh, these, are, these are positive and, and vigorous uh, metaphors in the Old Testament, fresh and lively metaphors. It, it contrasts with the despair and the defeat of those who oppose the king, dew is a frequent metaphor in the Old Testament. It's, it's plentiful and fresh every morning. It, it gives life. It nourishes. And so verse 3 pictures a great host of, we might say, fresh, uh, youthful people flocking to the king. Uh, that, that's the basic idea here. They're energized. They're well-nourished. They're eager to join this king, um, to follow him, to join him in battle. Now, maybe you're thinking, well, I don't always, I don't feel like that often, right? We often don't feel that way. Life weighs you down. You don't always recognize the victories of the king or feel energized. But I want to look, I want you to look at verse 7, uh, finally, uh, to see the, the king that you are united to. Verse 7 says, he will drink by the uh, from the brook by the wayside. And I think actually a, a, a better translation, a more helpful translation there is uh, begins with the end. Along the way, he will drink from the brook. I think maybe the ESV says that. Uh, along the way, he will drink from the brook and so lift up his head. So this pictures this king who's out battling his way through the world on behalf of his people uh, to the point where all, of, all evil is a footstool and there's nothing but peace. He's battling his way, but, he, but along the way, he pauses to drink from the brook. Uh, and he stands refreshed and presses on. Uh, and that's how the Messiah is pictured here, as, as continually refreshed, never beaten down. Um, in, in, I was in Pennsylvania a year or two ago and talking with a friend from high school uh, and also our, one of our uh, former teachers and, and soccer coach uh, was in the conversation too. And our former teacher coach was remembering this, this other guy um, in, in soccer, how he was just uh, so full of energy and particularly running, remembering one, one particular game where he just ran relentlessly the entire game and seemed never to run out of energy until uh, he just about collapsed at the end. But uh, maybe you've played a sport like, uh, against someone like that. It just seems 
so full of energy, or maybe that's what playing with your kids in the living room feels like. Um, they just never seem to run out of energy, always fresh. Well, that's, that's what's pictured here in verse 7. It pictures this king that God would appoint, King Jesus, endlessly refreshed. He's battling his enemies, but he's sure to win. The, the outcome is not in doubt. And this is your king. Uh, this is your priest king. Uh, when you're feeling the weight of struggle, uh, maybe struggle with sin or any trial in life, battle, um, discouraged by those who don't serve the king in our world, just discouraged by brokenness and evil that's all around us in our world, uh, remember your king who rules on your behalf, um, who intercedes for you before the father. He's your priest. He suffered as you do. Uh, he's entered into glory now and he waits for you to join him. Remember your king whose, whose salvation and grace and strength to protect you and keep you uh, are endless. Uh, he's endlessly refreshed. So be encouraged and refreshed in your king. Uh, let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you uh, again this morning for uh, the truth and the encouragement of your word uh, here in Psalm 110. Um, we thank you for the way that it pictures our Lord Jesus um, in his certain victory, uh, the way it pictures our joy and eagerness to, to join him, to follow him. I pray that that joy and eagerness and willingness would be ours, that we would share in, in his encouragement and refreshment um, as he trusts perfectly your promise and what you've given him um, throughout all of history. Uh, we, we pray that this would be true of us, and we pray in Christ's name. Amen.